Michelle! I have so many questions right off the bat. So there is a little bit of violence here. Is this show killing people? Like a whole bunch of people went to sleep and never woke up again. So I took the quiz. Oh, I have anxiety and depression. They're pretty bad. Yeah, I know. Thanks. Yes. I'm, I'm really jealous of people who don't have to listen to themselves all the time because I'm a lot. Is it because you're an android? Diamonds, Michelle. Okay, okay. Just feel like, you know what? I'm gonna give the kids something nice. I'm gonna give them the Yule Log. I'm so proud of us. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you are too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. Hello and welcome to Angry Mint, which is our podcast. And we are Michelle and Catherine. And every fortnight, we bring you three things. One of them which is are a, thing. a pop culture thing and a research thing. And then we, in varying levels of success and manipulation and lying to ourselves, we make them fit together really, really well. And something in a in like a message the level of wisdom you would get from a fortune cookie that you can take about for the rest of your days and the rest of your days woo <laughs> well however many <laughs> this episode as always kept track by yours truly michelle you go first for I episode go, I, you 28 know, i knew that i remembered from last week this is the first time i've ever remembered i'm glad i was right i would have really taken the wind out of my sails and so shall we kick it off yeah so my weird thing to, to set the stage a little bit i am a homeschooler I homeschool my kids and that's a hard job because I have to pick all of the things that I teach them, which I am an educator. And so I feel very confident in teaching English language arts, which is what I'm trained to teach in, but all these other things I'm constantly looking for, you know, like curriculum from experts. And it's particularly hard because I homeschool from a secular perspective and there's not as many materials for that. And so you're always, it's just, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of responsibility. And I feel like I'm in a pretty good groove right now. And my daughter has been reading the graphic novel for Sapiens. And <gasps> I know what your thing is. Oh, do you? I think I do. I, I think actually, all right. maybe I'm wrong, but I think I know what it is. I Probably think. Uh, so, all right. So my daughter. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. My daughter is reading Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, uh, which is a book, like I read the, the not graphic novel version when it came out. I really like this book. I don't agree with absolutely every perspective that Harari takes, but I think he would appreciate that as well. It's a very, I especially like its take on intertext, inter um, subjectivity. 
and how we have agreed upon realities and that like like that that's the, the thing I took the most away from it and that I'm really trying to hit hard with my daughter is like you know there is nothing biologically that says we can't murder each other that's a rule that we all <laughs> that we all agree on and if enough of us stop agreeing on it it's no longer a reality that's why those realities are so important like it's more the the fake realities are the most important realities because the earth doesn't care if you think it's flat. So, um, we, yeah, so there's, it's been some yeah. really good discussions and I um, like that. Um, in sapiens, I think he usually, what's the example he uses in that like Peugeot, the car company, but you went to murder. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, go, go right cut, to where the kids will appreciate we'll, we'll cut and dry. <laughs> yeah. So in this book, it, leans heavily on the prevailing theory about sapiens overtaking Neanderthals as the dominant species. And so, so Harari spends a lot of time kind of wondering why did so many, you know, why are we the only homo species, right? Like there are, there were other yeah. versions of humans. There were a lot. Yeah. And like, and, and what happened to them all. Right. And so there's, has long been this, this belief that we basically killed them off. Like we either did it directly or indirectly by hoarding the resources and that we were not basically that we can't play well with others. And that right. um, so badly that we wiped out all of our other relatives. And so this is the prevailing theory that has come up. And as I was, as I'm doing this with her, I'm also following this history curriculum with my kindergartner that in much more nuanced, like much simpler terms, basically puts the same theory out for him, right? Like, oh, sapiens evolved in Africa. And when we did, the Neanderthals all went away, right? Like, like this right. very clear picture of it. And so like, it's, it's coming up everywhere. Like I'm seeing in all these different places. And then I open the news to find out. Yup, yup. A baby tooth in a French cave that completely has upended everything we know about sapiens and Neanderthals. And so I'm going to, this is from uh, science.org. And it says that a single broken molar found buried within a windswept rock shelter in southeastern France could push back the first evidence of modern humans in Europe by nearly 10,000 years. And so they're basically, because they found this tooth and they found it like under layers of like, so it was evidence that sapiens were living here. And then there was a time period where no one was living there. And then Neanderthals were living there. And then sapiens were living there again. So it really pushes back the timeline and suggests that, well, actually, no, we didn't just kill off all of the Neanderthals. Like we lived at least in something, some sort of co-harmony, right? For, for a much longer period of time than we thought. Um, and obviously we don't know that much yet. And we probably truly never will know for sure, right? Like it's all just sort of guesswork, but it just makes me think about like um, a friend of I were talking about how it's really uncomfortable to go and look at a textbook from even like 20 years ago. Like yeah, if, if you go and look at the textbooks that we had when we were in high school, you're like, oh, that's not true. And that's not true. And that's not true. Oh gosh, that's terrible. And like, <laughs> it just, when, as somebody who is solely responsible for choosing the curriculum for all of these subjects, it just makes me feel very overwhelmed because I'm like, well, how much of this is even going to remain a belief within this discipline 
for the next five years. Like, <laughs> but, but by teaching them the ground rules of reality as a construct and how to understand and see the construct, you're really preparing them for any changes that will happen to the curriculum in the world. No, like there are days when I'm like, do I need to teach? This is not, don't come after me. I do teach them content. <laughs> But there are days where I'm like, do we need to learn any no, content? Just or- critical thinking drills all day long, <laughs> reading critical and critical thinking. And reading comprehension. I feel like- Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Reading comprehension, <laughs> critical thinking, nothing else. What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Maybe we'd get to the center of the earth faster. I don't know why that's the goal I set in mind. <laughs> that's humanity's goal. Screw space. I'm not down, down with Bezos. Get, get down there. So I don't know. It just, it just made me like, because I'm already teaching a much more complicated curriculum. I mean, you know, we're reading sapiens. We're not like just going through a nice textbook. That's like, and then this, and then this. So it's already more complicated. Uh, And we're, we're teaching this to a group, like a, a group of parents that are homeschooling take turns being the lead for the discussion each week. And there's a group of about eight, um, probably 10 to 14 year olds reading this together and they have some really smart discussions and it's really good. Um, but it's already so complicated. And now it's my week next week and I have to go. So kids, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we do play well with others, but not anymore. Maybe we did once. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if we just knew that story, we could do it again. And we already like um, say the the part we're on right now is very, very, very hard on agriculture as a concept and says that agriculture was terrible for humans. It was a terrible deal. We never should have entered into that contract and that now we're trapped in it and basically makes the argument that wheat domesticated us and that we are basically yeah. the everything we've done has been in service of wheat and corn. And that is, we are now their little minions. So then, but then the, the kids are like, oh, so we shouldn't garden. And I'm like, no, that's not. Oh, <laughs> and how do then do you explain to kids that age? Well, it's already too late. This yeah. is set. You can't turn back without turning them into utter nihilists immediately. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a tough balance. Can be, uh, I don't know. And not just like really into hunting, I guess. Do you know deer can get COVID now? Oh, deer are probably like harboring COVID. Like they're probably going to make it where we can't eradicate it. Yeah. Thanks, deer. That really shook. For some reason, that fact, I learned this week that deer can get COVID and bananas are probably going to be extinct soon. They've been telling me bananas are going to be extinct. Like, but they're not, right? Because like Monsanto exists, right? I'm sure everyone's like, ooh, boo modified food, boo GMOs. But like, when you want banana bread, you should thank them. I feel like I've read multiple headlines that are like, this is probably the last bunch of bananas you're ever going to eat. And then I keep eating bananas. I, They're around. Like They're the around. Boy who cried that wolf. is a very cool history. I wish that was my weird thing now about the history of Cavendish bananas, but it's not going to be. Look it I, up, people. It's cool. I have a similar thing tucked away as a research thing when I need one, but I won't. I won't. I won't spoil, but I have. A, okay. You know, when I can't come up with a research thing, I have one. Well, speaking of that, are you, should we, should, 
Anything? I'm ready. Okay. Yeah, that's it. My, my weird thing is that this tooth has upended everything we know about humanity. And that's, hard. I will say for the record, that is what I knew that would be on the podcast today. I'm very excited that it was. So, but speaking of that, having things stored away, I do for the podcast sometimes have in my notes, something that's like, oh, if I can't think of anything this week, we'll go to this. And this is the first time I've ever had to go to that well for anything. And I don't know, weird things, sometimes they come easy, sometimes they don't. So my weird thing is a little random this week, but it's something I've been holding on to, which is the Beach Boys. I like the Beach Boys. Um, They had an album that followed, that was like the really anticipated follow-up to Pet Sounds called Smile. And do you know anything about the history of Smile, that album? No. Um, Brian Wilson, who's like, super wonderful musical genius, but also has a lot of issues with mental health and really struggled through that, especially around the time that they were done with Pet Sounds and starting Smile and recording Smile. He was in a very bad place. He's on the record saying that. Um, Basically, that album was not released when it was supposed to be. And it, it became one of the most anticipated and one of the most mysterious and kind of legendary unreleased albums of all time. And so I learned, not recently, this has been sitting in my notes forever, but I learned why they didn't release it for so long, like decades and decades. It was finally, finally released when Wilson was quite old and he won awards for it. But the reason it was never officially released is pretty weird. And it's that, um, It was a very high concept album, Smile, and he wanted elements of the earth and wind and fire and water, and they were all going to be sounds of this. So water, they had water and they had wind chimes. And for fire, there was the song called Fire. It's also known as like, oh, I don't have that in my notes, but somebody's cow. Who was the cow that started the Chicago fire, right? The cow kicked over a bucket and it started a fire. But anyway, basically for the fire, he wanted it to really have like to evoke the sounds of the fire and not just any fire, but the 1871 Great Fire of Chicago. And so he insisted he bought everyone toy fire helmets and insisted everyone in the recording studio put on the fire helmets. And then he started a fire in the studio in a trash can and he wanted to get the sounds of the fire And as the studio filled with smoke, the fire kind of went out of control. He insisted everyone keep recording. They kept their hats on. They kept recording. He wouldn't let anyone out of the studio, even though it was filling with smoke. And he did say later about it, I was feeling unhappy. So I thought that fire tape would express the crazy weird thoughts I was going through, which also included locking everyone in a room filled with fire and smoke. Now, everyone made it out fine. And the studio was fine. The fire eventually extinguished. They got it back in control. It was fine. No one was hurt. No damage was done. But a few days later, a nearby building, a building near the studio, burned down. And Brian Wilson somehow, in this bad place he was in, made himself fully believe that his song fire was responsible. And he gave an interview. 
the song that what he his song he created with the sounds of fire was so powerful and so evocative contagious around the area exactly contagious fire and i mean it's weird i don't want to make light of like he was having a hard time but it is weird and he said to rolling stone in, a, in an interview later quote we thought maybe it was witchcraft or something we didn't know what we were into End quote. So as a result, he shelved the entire album and said, we're not going to release it because it's witchcraft that will burn everything down. And um, it became the most famous unreleased album of rock and roll history because he, Brian Wilson, believed he was a witch and his magic was song and it was just too powerful. Well, I mean, if you believe that your album is going to make things spontaneously burst into flames, I think that's the responsible thing to do, I guess. It was the right thing for him, right? He didn't want to burn down the world. And he continued to believe that. And like, so what ultimately led it to be released? Or was it just kind of like, it's time fizzled out. And then he also, yeah, he got help. He became better. And then, yeah, then ultimately they he didn't believe that anymore and they released it and he got his first i believe grammy i think his first ever grammy from that album when it was released a major music award that he had never gotten even though he was in the beach boys he did get it so it was a powerful album but for good for good in the end that is and that's, fascinating yeah i love the beach boys and i just didn't i knew that was like a lot of mystery about why didn't smile get released i didn't know it was because of potential burning witchcraft. Okay. Okay. So let's do pop culture. Pop culture. I I don't <laughs> I won't try to explain myself. I'm just going to go. My pop oh, culture thing is have you are, have you watched Ted Lasso? I still haven't. I'm waiting until my spouse has to go to a different state because okay. it seems like it's very feel good, but I'm going to binge it. Okay. So actually that is, that is my pop culture thing about it is it is very feel good, but it's the specific mix of feel good with really Ooh. deep felt emotional stuff that, that comes out of nowhere. Um, and I just like, I think my question is like, who is this show for? And how did they know it would work? And since you haven't seen it, I don't think that I can, I don't want, I don't want to spoil anything. Um, but it is very similar to Shit's Creek in the, in this way. I, yeah, that's the first thing I thought of when you said, when you explained that. Yeah. It's not that they're similar in tone. It is that they are, or it's not that, I, I don't know. It's, it's similar in that if you t- explain the premise to me, I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> if you explained to me what was happening, I would go, no, that isn't going to work. Why would you do and that? Like I said, it's, it's a football coach. It's a rich family who's poor now. And you are going to cry and laugh and be emotionally invested in both. You say, yeah, no, yeah. No. Really, no, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and so in particular, the thing that I, what, th- that I am so interested in is like, did they know, or is are tons of people out there making shows that are improbable and nonsense. And some of them just hit, like, I guess I'm, mm. I guess my pop culture thing is just sort of how this particular set of stuff that I am watching. I think I would also put 
maybe this is us in this category, which is my current guilty pleasure watch. And it's in its final season. Do you watch this is us? There's a certain, like, I feel like with a lot of shows, we definitely, and a lot of like pop culture, we have very similar taste, but then there's a certain show and this is like Zoe's infinite playlist. I, I and quit, this is I us. Zoe's I, infinite playlist. Okay. I'll have you all know. Good, good. I did watch the Christmas episode of that just randomly. And I was like, what is happening? Um, but like, this is us, I think reminds me of that where I'm like, I can't, I don't get this kind of like melodrama, this emotion I can't tap into, but it, but like you, yeah, it's for you. Yeah. And it's not just me, many, no. many people, this is us. I know is like really gets people. Well, I mean, and it is, it's, a, so I don't want to put Ted Lasso in the same category as this is us because Ted Lasso, I feel like is not emotionally manipulative i just think it is just emotional like i think that it is yeah and there's a big difference and i do think that this is us is emotionally manipulative and kind of contrived it's almost like a parable right like it's like no this is not these are not real people but it also doesn't feel like like gray's anatomy or um something where it has all that melodrama but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. It feels like it's just melodrama because they know it's like the soap opera. We'll just keep sucking them back in. We'll just, well, they'll never stop watching. We can make this money forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, That's what I felt like happened with the walking dead. Like Mm, the walking dead, like the first season of the walking dead is fantastic television. And then they continued to hit notes of that throughout. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they still continued to hit notes of that, but I, very forcefully broke up with it when um during the Negan era when like I was just like oh my god you're just gonna bring them to some place that's paradise oh wait it's not paradise people are still bad they will have to fight for their lives we'll bring them to some place that's paradise oh wait people like I mean like I was like are you are you all just literally gonna do this till the end of actual time like until we really are living in some sort of bunker somewhere and then we'll be like oh this seems familiar um this is just yeah now and then it just becomes a reality show yeah (laughs) so i i think that my pop culture thing because i i I couldn't quite figure out how to articulate it but it was like maybe between the two of us if we're talking about it together a little bit i just i'm wondering like are people just throwing stuff at the wall and then sometimes the magic just happens Or do some of these people really know, like, this is a magic formula. Like this is gonna, this crazy mix of stuff is going to be the thing that hits. And I just, I'm really not sure which one I think that it is like, well, I think it, it definitely has to be some combination, but I think with shows like I haven't seen Ted Lasso, but I trust you totally. And Barry the show Barry, which I keep trying to get you to watch. And it's the same people that did like Atlanta, right? Yeah. Atlanta gets very funny and then you're devastated and you're crying. Not in the same way as Shit's Creek Which Atlanta is coming back very soon. Have you seen? Yeah. Excited. Okay. Um, and the same people that made Barry, some of the same people did Atlanta. There's some crossover. So I think, I, I would say more than just whatever is sticking to the wall. It's just like very talented people are very good at making TV that is good. <laughs> that sounds very dumb but I'm just like maybe sometimes people are really good at their jobs and if their job is making maybe TV, maybe they're just really yeah, well, transcendent because I'm really interested in this coming from the angle of 
those kinds of emotions, they hit you from very different directions at the same time or in quick succession, because I'm realizing those are like, right now, what I'm looking for in cult and pop culture is that my favorite things are books that will make me laugh and laugh. And then immediately I'm crying in the next page. I just think that's like the most powerful you can get in a lot of ways. And it's what I want. So my daughter and I started watching Queer Eye. And I feel like it does that, right? Like it feels, and I think in particular, these shows, uh, maybe, so Ted Lasso, Schitt's Creek, probably Atlanta, maybe Queer Eye. They seem sort of light and silly as a veneer. And so then the deep comes at you. Like, I mean, it's almost like you're- you're That much harder. Yeah, like you're walking Because your guard is down. When you go watch This Is Us, you know you're getting melodrama. Right. You're ready. You want it. You're pumped and primed. But yeah, if you're like laughing, that that has to be it. That the emotion is so much stronger when you're laughing and having fun and pow, right? And, if and, you're and, in the boxing ring and you get punched in the face, it's like, going to be very different than a if boxing you're, ring, right? Yeah. Then you're walking down the street and someone punches you in the face. But when I'm at the carnival, I'm not expecting <laughs> to get punched in the face. Well, I don't know, maybe. Exactly. Well, what kind of carnival are you at? <laughs> what county are we talking? Right. What county? Well, um, the, the, the ones that have demo derbies. You might get punched in the face there. Oh, I need, oh, we got to go to a demo derby soon. So there are also some shows I really love right now do this, not with like crying, but um, being very, very funny. And then just like emotionally devastating you in a slightly different way. I don't think I ever cried during Barry, but there were times I just was like, and I just made a face that no one can see, Um, but that are so emotionally devastating. They're not sad. You're not crying, but it's like a gut punch. And I just finished. This is good timing. Have you ever watched Search Party? No, I haven't even heard of Search Party. It's a show. I loved it. I'm going to say unequivocally, I loved it. It's five seasons and I had watched the first two seasons and then I I just stopped watching for various reasons. And my spouse and I picked it back up last week and we watched season three in one night. A whole season? A whole season. And then we watched season four and five in the same week. We just watched three seasons of this show in a week. It's that good. And it was doing, I don't think it ever made me cry, but it was so good at some of the emotional gut punches of just like, what? And it's a super funny show. It's insanely funny. So I think maybe, maybe it's a combination of things, just the magic, just a flash in the pan magic that you can't capture. You can't make a formula for that. But you have to have the elements. I'm going to bring in Walter Benjamin here, Michelle. Walter Benjamin, the uh, German theorist. He's like, you can never make someone know something and you can never create knowledge. You can't force orthopedically learning into someone. And all you can do is make sure all the elements are there. And true knowledge is that moment of, aha, I get it. Epiphany. And just because you can't give someone an epiphany doesn't mean you can't put all the elements there for it to happen. They just have to arrive at it. So I think, right, it has to be talented people who are good at making TV, but then that magic has to be there. And I think that emotional dissonance you talked about makes all the emotions stronger and makes it better. And I mean, I'm sure that that you have to be in the right space when you're watching it too. I just, I think 
So there was an episode, I think we've talked about this on this podcast before. I was going to say the right space being a trampoline bouncing. (laughs) (laughs) That was the space I was on because, uh, Ted Lasso has been my, my workout show though. I watch it either when I'm like in my, in my office, like running on my trampoline or on the treadmill. And I was like, Oh, this lighthearted show. Oh, I'm sobbing. I'm sobbing so hard that I can't safely stay on this trampoline. <laughs> um, so like, and it hit me like it just hit, it, it was one particular episode. Not every episode makes me feel that way, but it was um, a particular episode that hit really hard, but the same thing happened with Atlanta. I think Atlanta skews a little more heavy often like I feel like Ted Lasso that it is and and Schitt's Creek too is like those hard those hard-hitting moments are farther apart and fewer throughout the show but there was an episode of Atlanta where I cried through the entire episode and I was like this is one of the hardest things I've ever watched and it was um Cause you've seen it. You're caught up, right? Yeah. 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 It, it, it was the, the episode where he's in the woods. And I just, I just, I cried from the beginning to the end. Like I just cried through the entire episode and Same. I, and, Same. and I was like, oh, oh, like I didn't turn this on expecting that to happen. Like, and I don't cry through a whole episode of this is us, even when it's an episode designed to make me cry through the whole thing, because like I came right. there. Like, like you said, like I came into the boxing ring, like I'm not, my, my gloves are up. I'm not just going to take punches to the face. This is us. I'm ready. Um, but I was not ready for that episode of Atlanta and I yeah. was not ready for this episode of Ted Lasso. And I, um, I guess it's, I just, I can't quite figure out what question I'm trying to ask about this, but just I think why, like, why is it so good? Well, not even why is it so good, but like, why do we want to cry? <laughs> oh, why? That's a, that's a, I mean, I have a whole academic book project in the trash about crying. You so do. we could talk about that. I do. I, uh, yeah. Um, we want, oh, well, one of the theories about why crying feels good. You only, they did a study of babies and they realized babies who are really abandoned babies who are completely uncared for in really bad ways and situations don't cry they don't cry right yeah and crying and this is you know just a few it's not everyone's opinion we're going to go the sapiens route this is one answer to one human thing but the they the thought is that crying you only cry out to someone you don't cry alone if you think you're going to get a response like crying is something you do communication and there's no reason to to call out for help and those babies realize no one's coming so they don't cry anymore to communicate isn't that sad that's really sad so maybe we just do it because you you cry you, you you know when you're watching that show and you're home alone or in your trampoline no one's gonna you're not doing it so someone comes and says yeah, it's not wrong. a performance but it is but it is maybe just to commute. It's communicative. Yeah. To say, yeah. Hey, I see you. I feel this. And that feels good to just, to something has reached out and you're reaching a larger back goal, to be like, Oh, we're in this together. Me. But it is just really cathartic. Crying it's does no feel good sometimes. Yeah. Or maybe it's just good to cry about something that is not in your life in a real way. Because <laughs> there's I so mean, much to cry about that is real that. 
because these things are, you know, particularly it's like, you know, you're waiting along and you fall into this trench, but then as soon as you get out of it, you get to go back to the nice, cause it is, it's not a show where it's just down, 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 sad, 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 sad. It's like, oh, here's a very real, authentic, hard feeling moment. Now back to the laughs. Like maybe it's just the, um, yeah, it makes the highs higher, the lows yeah. lower. Yeah. And it, it is a lot harder to do both well, right. To be comedic and then to be emotional in that way. And then the it same, a lot like, harder. a 30 minute episode, you can make me like laugh out loud and cry in a 30 minute episode. That just feels very, feels very powerful. Yeah. I think I get to talk about this is us on, um, pretty much pop. Oh, I'm going to listen to that because that show, <laughs> I have a lot. I don't get it, um, but I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. I'm kind of obsessed with it because one of the main actors um, was married to an actress, an actress on Selling Sunset. Selling Sunset is a reality show. Oh, I know it's selling. I had to write about Selling Sunset. The whole concept. And, was, oh, that's that's the other place where we, we don't overlap. That's where I'm like, I don't know yes. what you're doing. <laughs> yep. Yep. My, but, but we all, we speak the same language with it. Cause you have to do it for work and I do it for fun, which is nice for me <laughs> that even though you're not doing it because you like it, you still, when I say selling sunset, know what I mean. And I appreciate that. I really do. <laughs> I don't even know how to sum up my pop culture thing. When we go to, I guess it's like shows that make you cry and laugh there. That's my pop culture thing. Yeah. I mean, pop culture that does that like I said it's I think I don't know what to say either but right now I'm really interested in it and trying to see what does that for me and there have been few things but they're some of my favorite things that are the most memorable and also I feel like I've said that I cried through whole episode like I don't cry at things that much like I'm I'm no. not that I'm not an easy crier like uh so these things stand out to me in my memory and feelings like as as unique and impactful yeah that's also probably is why you're questioning this, right? If, especially if you're not a music crier, what is it about this that makes me cry? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My pop culture thing. I, I just want everybody to know oh. that uh, Catherine has really, I, I'm expecting a lot right now. I'll just say, as Catherine has pumped up this pop culture moment. So I want your anticipation to match my own so we can, we can feel, ride this wave together. I think the words I used were, it doesn't matter what else either of us say on this episode. This is so good. Yeah. So that, that level of swagger <laughs> is what we're bringing into this moment. I want you to just feel that coming through <laughs> as we talk. Oh, okay. I think we've reached the high, high. Are you ready to crash into that low valley now? <laughs> so I'm going to do a quick disclaimer. Oh my God. That followed by this disclaimer. Yeah, you can give a disclaimer now you're in it. No, here's the disclaimer. And you're going to be like, what are you talking? What are you going to talk about? The disclaimer is that while nothing here will be explicit or uncomfortable, my parents listen to this podcast. Hi mom. Hi dad. You can listen. This isn't going to be uncomfortable for you, but if you have maybe kids in the room there, we're going to talk about sexual content a little right okay. now. We did have a you whole episode what? where we said penis, like Oh yeah. Which At my least. father brought to the plate actually. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Who's so, who is what I want to know. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, this week, this could have been my weird thing. The other one could have been pop culture. It doesn't matter. This is weird. 
But um, I made a pop culture because last week we talked about Wordle and it was very exciting when we had the same thing. I'm also just want to bring it up because Wordle got bought. That's exciting for Mr. Wordle. We've also talked about paywalls here and I'm very concerned the New York Times is going to put that behind a paywall someday. Can I interject for just a second? Yes. If they put it behind a paywall, somebody is just going to make another free one because the point of Wordle, Mm. what has made Wordle good is not Wordle. There's a bajillion Wordle like copycats and apps and you can go play a million a day if you want to. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a pretty simple code. Um, And so I don't understand why the New York Times bought it because yeah, because like what you're saying, it's what we talked about last week. The specialness of it is that everyone does it at the same time. Yeah. And like, if you and put if it behind you... a paywall, it isn't that anymore. And people aren't going to care about it. Like nobody's going to exactly. be sharing about it every day. If what they're really sharing is I have a New York Times subscription. Like that's not. Yeah. That's then you're not gonna a jerk. Do you're a jerk. The best pop culture I've ever done. Sexual material warning. This week, I learned about chuck tingle do you know who chuck tingle is i have absolutely no idea who chuck tingle is okay i was looking into wordle i was reading about the new york times paywall all this came together for me to learn about chuck tingle who is someone who's one of the most popular self-publishing authors on amazon um chuck tingle is a pseudonym and i'll tell you what i learned about him But I found on Amazon Chuck Tingle's book, which you can get as on your Kindle for quite cheap. Here's the title of the book. The physical manifestation of Wordle pounds my butt as a slightly frustrating, but ultimately rewarding and meditative daily routine. And that's one of many he has written. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books. And they are kind of um, hokey. Topical. Erotica. Topical erotica. Like novelty erotica books. So wait. And. I'll I'll save my questions for the end. Yeah. um, Maybe hold your questions on the end about um, the book, The Physical Manifestation of Wordle Pounds My Butt is a slightly frustrating, but ultimately rewarding and meditative daily routine. I am going to send you the book cover. All the book covers look slightly the same. Um, There, you know, you design your own cover if you're doing it on Amazon. So whenever you get that, I want everyone to know I've sent you the cover for this for the Chuck Tingle book on Wordle erotica. Two-time Hugo Award finalist. Yes. Oh, so, so is that, is the face coming out of, so, so to describe to the, to the viewers, I, it is a, looks like a blue background with a very, you know, modernist looking couch with some stripy pillows on it and a shirtless, thin white man um, looking, I don't know. How would you describe his face? Um, surprised? Amused? Amused. And then there is a Wordle grid filled out. They lost. And the face representing the Wordle grid is like a dark- physical manifestation of Wordle. 
of Wordle spelled incorrectly, I guess, to avoid being sued. Yeah. Um, the, the physical manifestation of the Wordle is in the center of the grid of the losing Wordle board. Uh, looking at the back of the, the shirtless white man, very lustily. Lustily, yes. And there are um, adult words. He guessed only adult words oh. for his Wordle, if you'll notice that detail, which what, is mainly is the, the plot of the think? book. Fight? Night? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, we're just going to unpack Chuck Tingle for a second. Very successful erotica author. Um, I'm going to, going to tell you the blurb for this particular book, this Wordle book. After hearing good things about the online game Wordle, Carl tries his hand at this daily contest. He's already got a great morning routine and he's excited to add something new to the mix. Unfortunately, Carl's Wordle game goes south quickly, ending in disaster and ruining Carl's day. But when the physical manifestation of Wordle challenges Carl's preconceived notions about relaxation, and meditation, Carl is willing to give the game one more shot. The problem is simple. Carl keeps guessing sex-based words. However, the physical manifestation of Wordle is ready to do what it takes for better results, finding the D and clearing the carnal corners of Carl's mind. The erotic tale is 4,100 words of sizzling human on gay physical manifested word game action, including and then it lists a bunch of adult things I won't say on this podcast. Okay. So, and also I love this detail. I read some of the selections you can get for free on Amazon. The physical manifestation of Wordle, who is the love interest, is named Hompo, H-O-M-P-O. He gave it a name beyond the physical manifestation of Wordle. Do Have you read this? I read um the free amazon sample okay but you have not read it in its entirety no like like is this like is the physical manifestation of wordle something other people can see or is this like a like a have you seen the movie her where right right like it is it is very human in form but it probably you know is it his fantasy life or it does it come to him for real? And it could come to anyone who like guesses like a adult fight club situation. Like what? What do we? Right. Where, where are we at here? We don't know. I think from from the three pages I read, I think it is sixty percent fight club situation and forty percent. This book is forty one hundred words and was written in two days, so okay. no reason. Just and I just accept this, accept this at face value and stop questioning it. No, I like your questions, but I also like how you are just, you, you leaned way back in your chair. You have your pen, your pen's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I'm thinking live thoughts. I told you, you had to prepare yourself for this pop culture. Um, I'm going to tell you some other titles that Chuck Tingle, he has dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books. Um, including some choose your own adventure erotica. Very fun. Other titles by Chuck Tingle include slammed in the butt by my Hugo award nomination. And as you mentioned, he does have a Hugo award nomination and he wrote a book about it. Pounded by the pound colon turned gay 
by the socioeconomic implications of Britain leaving the European Union. <laughs> wait, are, are all of these sexual encounters with oh, let me objects? I'll tell you. I'll read you some more titles well, I guess I can answer it. Okay. There's Pounded by President Bigfoot. Pounded in the butt by the sentient manifestation of my own ignorant climate change denial. <laughs> Pounded in the butt by my own butt. And then, in case you thought this is all one note, not pounded by anything, colon, six platonic tales of non-sexual encounters. With what? <laughs> um, the cover of that has a unicorn human and a dinosaur human. <laughs> For Chuck Tingle, whoever he is. I mean, this, right? It's, I mean, the climate change, my own, turned gay by my own ignorant climate change like people, denial. People buy and read these. Like, yeah, yeah. And I will say from what I read, it's well-written. Like it, it's, this person can write. This person is clever. They know what they're doing. Um, it's, it's not difficult to read. There's not errors. It's the grammar and syntax are great. Um, and so basically he got his start by doing like monster erotica, like Bigfoot, dinosaurs, unicorns, and just did more and more and more until it was like, yeah, let's do one about Brexit. Let's do one about climate change. Wordle's hot now. And when I dove into who is Chuck Tingle, it's a pseudonym and he creates a lot of distance between himself and whoever the real Chuck Tingle is. He has a very specific online presence and a very specific kind of vernacular that is he, he has said that he uses so that people can't find out who he is. Um, Chuck Tingle, the pseudonym, the pseudonymic persona, presents himself as a Taekwondo grandmaster from Billings, Montana, who acquired a PhD in holistic massage at DeVry University, which does not offer such a degree. And a photo presented as a portrait of him was found on a stock photo website. Okay. Yeah. So I ghostwrite. And I I just I like this whole thing just feels like somebody who was ghostwriting and was like, how far could I take this? How far could I take this? And now there's no end. And they're just in it. They're just in it now. Like, what are they supposed to do? This is there's no there's no end to this depth, is what it feels like. And I see how that could happen as a ghostwriter because it's a weird world out there. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy for whoever this person is and hope that I, when I first found out about them, I'm like, oh, gross. I don't want to look at erotica. And then I saw the titles and yeah, I haven't read any of Mr. Tingle's, I'm sorry, Dr. Tingle, PhD, Dr. any of Dr. Tingle's books in full. But when I found out that they're actually quite well-written and the titles of these, I, yeah, I wish nothing but the best for him. I like that he's in the world very much. Pounded in the butt by my own butt. <laughs> Pounded by the pound. That's such a good joke. <laughs> 
because it's Brexit. No. The socioeconomic implications of Britain leaving the European Union. I still have I still have the cover. I've been I've been just looking at the back and forth between the two faces because I, I like the uh the juxtaposition. It looks, it looks almost it reminds me almost of Animorphs covers for some reason that I can't put my finger on. <laughs> but yeah, I encourage everyone to go to I mean it's not Amazon because Amazon, I, I try to think of alternative bookstores. Where else can I send you? But because Amazon's self-publishing platform is so huge and easy. That really you can only find Mr. Sorry, Dr. Dr. Tingle on Amazon. So I encourage you to go and read some samples and look at those covers. I spent so long reading titles of Chuck Tingle books today, and it made me really happy. <laughs> well, you were right. You were right to come in with that swagger. You 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 yeah. brought pop culture today. Whoop, whoop. I'm always so bad at pop culture. And this is what I didn't apologize for. <laughs> Hompo. His name is Hompo, the uh-huh. physical manifestation of Wordle. It also goes with Wordle. So I was happy with it. Okay. I think that's, the, we're just going to let everyone sit in that. Let's move on to research. <laughs> thing is something I legitimately had to research for once. Um, not just a random thing I found for you all. It was part of my actual work. I am teaching a new class this semester on the short story, the American short story. And I wanted to give like a lecture, an opening lecture for the first day about like why, why I talk about the short story. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to look up some stuff about the history of the short story. And I guess somewhere I knew this, but I don't think I knew it in this direct of a term. Um, and so how old do you think the short story is? Oh, good question. I mean, what are we classifying a short story? Am I like, like fairy tales, parables, Bible verses? So probably not. So that was part of what we talked about in the class too. Is kind of the definition of the short story and that it is set aside from like the oral tradition, like um it's so okay so not just stories people tell but like short story i'm sitting down and writing a story that is short yes did it start with like edgar Allan poe like that era that era yeah yay i did it which i cannot tell you i cannot tell you the years edgar Allan poe lived 1798 i don't know when early 1800s kind of that that yeah and so um it it's just really shocking to me how young it is. And so I was, I was, so the definition of a short story is also somewhat debated, but it's usually, um, we consider something a novel. If it is, some people say 40,000 words or more or 50,000 words or more, depending on it's like a novella. If it is between like 11,000 and 50,000. And then if it is under that, then it is a short story. So it sounds like just to keep it all connected here. It sounds like, how, how long did you say, Dr. Tingles? 4,100 words. 4,100 words? Yeah, very short. Very short. That's technically a short story then, I would say. All and right, that's so- That's kind of a short, short story almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a short story then, if you're just kind of defining it by its length, I mean, th- 
obviously we have works that are short, but they also, and this, this comes from Edgar Allan Poe's definition of it, uh, says that it's something that is intended to be read all in one sitting and that mm. is enhanced by being read all in one sitting, right? That like, you yeah. were supposed to get kind of lost in it from beginning to end. It's not something you're supposed to like pick up and put down like you would a novel. Um, and because of that, like one of the hallmarks of a short story is that it is very judiciously edited, right? It doesn't have a lot of fluff or filler or, you know, like there's usually not a ton of exposition. It's like, let's just get to the thing and tell the story and then get out. And so, um, but I think it's just so interesting because we're obviously storytelling creatures, right? Like we, right. we tell stories as part of our existence and like even very young children start telling stories. So I looked at an article from Prospect Magazine by a man named William Boyd, who actually is one of the judges for the um, BBC's short story contest. And so he has this article about the history of the short story. And I just, it just, it just has some really beautiful lines in it. Like, let us begin at a notional beginning. I have an image in my head of a band of Neanderthals, which, you know, we could- Hey, pre-connection alert. Connection number. Yeah, maybe with some sapiens tossed in too. Hunkered round the fire at the cave mouth as the night is drawing in. One of them says spontaneously, you'll never believe what happened to me today. And so he's saying like, you know, we've been telling stories for all of human history. So why did it take it so long for us to like make short stories of form? So that's his question. And he said, the short story had always existed as an informal oral tradition, but until the mass middle-class literacy of the 19th century arrived in the West and the magazine and periodical market was invented to service the new reading public's desires and preferences, there had been no real publishing forum for a piece of short fiction in the five to 50 page range. Oh. So it's interesting because basically the demand for the audience is what created the, so Authors always had the ability to write. I was going to say, there's always been an audience, right? Sitting around a fire, you say how your day went, going from town to town and singing a song. But is it just, we didn't define it that way until capitalism defined it that way for us? Just because capital. Yeah. So like it was the early to mid 19th century with authors like Hawthorne and Poe that this short story as we now think of it came out. And he, but he said that it wasn't like, there wasn't any like starts and stops to it. Like as soon as there was a place to put them, they were just springing out of these authors like crazy. There was tons of them. Ah. And he says, so the short story arrived fully fledged in the middle of the 19th century. So it, it suggests that it was always dormant within the human imagination and it just needed a profitable outlet. And profitable, it was yeah. super profitable. Um, in, in the 1920s, F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of The Great Gatsby, sold a short story to the Saturday Evening Post for $4,000. One short story in the 1920s for $4,000. Like, there are $4,000 in the 1920s? In the 1920s. Not like $4,000 of today's. What what would that be? I'm going to. That would still be a lot of money for a short story today. It's so interesting. That makes me think of then. Like we were both really into the green mile and I know that's not a short story. That's more like it came out in increments, but I wonder 
what's the history of um, serialized long form pieces? And is that connected to short stories? Because then people had to keep who were writing like full novels, but that would be a more profitable, easy outlet was to put them in short form if that was so popular. The equivalent in today's money would be $55,000. One short story. Wow. Good job, F. Scott. And um, so Melville, the author of Moby Dick, is widely regarded as one of the best short story writers. And he apparently, or at least publicly, hated writing short stories. Like he, which, I mean, if you've ever read Moby Dick. I did not Dick, know that. If you've yeah. ever read Moby Dick, that that checks because there's like 80 pages in the middle of Moby Dick that's just descriptions of harpoons. So somebody who likes yeah. to do that probably isn't isn't going to enjoy writing a short story very much where you can't have that kind of like rabbit hole that you follow where it needs to be very tight. Um, but he, he basically was like, this pays the bills so that I can write this other stuff that I want to write. And so like the short story for him wasn't some like great literary format, even though his, his short stories are held up as these amazing examples of literature. Um, it was, it was a means to an end, right? Like he was, hmm. that was like his day job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I find that really, really fascinating that it took us so long to find a space for the short story as a piece of literature and that it's so tied into economics that the yeah. creation of it was about these serialized magazines who that were very, very popular and people were very hungry for the short story. Like it was a lot of the, I mean, obviously if the Saturday Evening Post is willing to pay $4,000 for a single short story, they know that that's driving a lot of their subscribers and readers. And so I, I feel like, I mean, that hunger didn't go away. We've just channeled it into different mediums, right? I think every time I fall into a TikTok rabbit hole, I'm being sucked in forever. I right? love that. Yeah. TikToks are short stories. Our attention span's got maybe a little boo, 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 but, yeah, but the, that's what? such an interesting thing to think about in like maybe in an, a sapiens way of just how much had to change to get to that point, right? Because you had to have magazines or publications. So you have to have the printing press, but then they have to circulate so much more easily. So you need like mail systems in place. And it's really cool when you think about everything that had to come together so that we could defini definitionally have a short story. Yeah. So that that's my, my research. I guess everything that speaks a little short for me, I'm it's, that's not you all maybe. it's me I had I was solo parenting while my spouse traveled and it's been a, it's been a week <laughs> but the content there you're bringing very good content even if you're not elaborating so and you're I'm still giving, elaborating I'm just giving you work to do like a true exactly. teacher like here here's some stuff for you to you to run with no that's cool and and then we also learned that Chuck Tingle is actually writing short stories yes we did so I'm, that's very helpful look at how those I've already played off each other. Also, I don't need to, I don't need to bring it very much this week because clearly Catherine had it. So we. Right. Like I said, it doesn't matter what you say. Michelle. It doesn't. It's already done. Everyone's already stopped listening to go read Chuck Tingle. They're right all now. going to read. Yeah, exactly. They're all. Yeah. They're all reading about the. Three pages deep on Amazon lists and filling up the their cards. Manifestation of climate change denial. So. My research is actually tangentially related to a very long book, a 15,000 page book. So 15,000 page? 
Can you make a book be that many pages? Like, well, what is the definition of book here? That's a very, it was a very sloppy segue. So my research is I read a New York Times article from February 7th. The New York Times had an article called a Henry Darger dispute who inherits the rights to a loner's genius. And so Henry Darger, I don't know if you know him. He was a huge cultural touchstone for me. He's an outsider artist. Again, the word outsider artist isn't great. Sometimes we use outlier. Um, A lot of people refer to it now as untrained artists, but I don't like that either because sometimes they are trained and sometimes anyway, I'm going to say outsider artist because it's everyone knows what that means. He was an outsider artist. And there was, when I was in undergrad, the same time we would have both been in undergrad, a huge documentary on him called In the Realm of the Unreal. And it was right when I started studying art history in school. It was when I was going to the Tivoli Art House Theater in St. Louis. And I got to see this there and it just really stuck with me. And so I've really Henry Darger's work really imprinted on me. And basically he is known for, he was a janitor and he made all of this work in his spare time. He wasn't a trained artist. He never intended for anyone to see his artwork. He made it for himself. He made it for something to do in his spare time. There's also a lot of theories that he was um, abused in many ways as a child. And this was something he did to kind of work through that. And that happens a lot with outsider artists. I did more research about outsider artists. And there are a lot of outsider artists who were just abused emotionally, physically in all sorts of ways, and then create art around their day jobs as some sort of outlet to work through it. So what this article was talking about, Henry Darger, when he died at the age of 81 in 1973, he was very, he was a loner and he was very religious. He went to church. He went to his job at the hospital as a janitor at the hospital and didn't have any family, didn't have friends, very alone. When he died, he left all this artwork, which included. So what he does is he does a lot of really cool collages, a lot of works on paper, And he left hundreds and hundreds of those, but he also, that was kind of illustrations for this 15,000 page book he wrote, which was about a group of sisters called the Vivian sisters and the Vivian girls. And it's just an epic battle of like good versus evil and huge wars where these girls are like the saviors of the universe. And it's really wild and has this whole mythology to it. So when he died, his landlord found all of his artwork in his room. They went in, found it all, the landlord and his wife, Nathan and Kiyoki Lerner, and they were both artists in their own right. Um, Nathan was a photographer, Kiyoki was a classical pianist. And so they went to clear out his space when he died and they saw this and they said, this is really special. This is worthwhile. This needs to be seen by the world. And they preserved it. They cataloged it all, and then they started working with their art world friends to promote it. And so they, after a lot of work, got Henry Darger his first solo show in 1977. And now he's owned by the MoMA. He's collected one single work of paper on his has gone for like $800,000. He's very 
big money, big name artist, well-known. And so what this article is talking about, I'm really interested. This is research. I haven't done too much research into it, but basically I feel like my PhD in art history and visual culture sorts of pre-qualifies me for having done a lot of research for my whole life. I just want to talk through this as like a thought experiment with you. What the article is about is that this happens a lot with outsider artists, that no one knows they're making artwork. Their families have abandoned them for various reasons. They're estranged from their families. They die. And there's a mountain of artwork various people come upon, sometimes landlords, sometimes a buyer will see it in an estate sale, things like that. So this article is asking who owns those rights? Did these people have any legal right to go in and take that artwork? But at the same time, they promoted it. They kind of made him famous. Another landlord would have gone in and thrown it all away and rented that apartment as soon as they could again. What's happened to raise this issue is that very distant relatives of Henry Darger's were tracked. They didn't do this. They didn't reach out, but they were tracked down by a collector of vintage photography. This collector of vintage photography who doesn't really have any, doesn't do much legally. He used a genetic, um, you know, like 23andMe kind of thing, a genetic database to track down, does Henry Darster have any genetic relatives? And then he contacted those very distant genetic relatives. We're talking, you know, cousins twice removed, three times removed, and said, you have a legal claim to his artwork and to his estate. And I think you should go after it. And I'm letting you know. And they did. They filed a petition for determination of heirship to his whole estate, all his artwork. Um, and it's scheduled for February 23rd in Illinois. And so they, he said, the person who dug this up, this photography collector, that we're asserting the rights of the family, taking any and all action to restore his legacy. To understand that someone took what was his life's work and has capitalized on it, it's about righting a wrong. So my concern here, I feel like a, why did this person who has nothing to do with Henry Darger go out of his way to track down the family and get this legal hullabaloo stirred up at the same time? Yeah, it's kind of a problem if anyone can walk into your space and say, oh, well, this is ours. There should be some, you know, in the state of Illinois where this happened, there are, there's a chain of command. If someone dies, who owns their things? If there's no family, it goes to the state. They didn't follow the chain of command. They walked in and said, we're taking this. And I feel like why I want to talk through this with you is I feel like this is getting conflated where people are like, it's the right thing to do. These works have to go back to the family. They have to go back. Um, I feel like this genetic thing is getting kind of conflated with the politics and the really important work being done right now over repatriating artworks, right? Where artwork that was stolen by various colonizers, where people would go and steal artwork and take it back to Europe. And now most of the art in European museums is stolen. And we're finally kind of catching up and saying, those need to be repatriated. Those need to go back to the people and the areas where they were created. That's a whole other can of worms. Some people say, oh, well, 
those countries can't even take care of them. Um, no one would even see them if they weren't in Europe, stuff like that. Um, you know, and so this is coming up more and more. The Benin bronzes are going to be returned. The Pergamon, Pergamon marbles probably never will. That wonderful scene in Black Panther, mm -hmm. right? I love that. If you want to know what repatriation is about, it's when he goes in, Killmonger goes in and says, this isn't yours. I'm going to take it back. So I feel like those very important politics where those things should be repatriated, in my opinion. I don't like this kind of genetic. That's a country. That's a culture. That's nationhood. I don't like that getting conflated with genetics in a way. Especially with somebody that this individual didn't have any personal ties to or. Yeah. Henry Darcher's mother died when he was very young. His father, when he was eight years old, put him in an orphanage and then died. And then Henry Darcher was transferred to an asylum that he tried to escape and escape. He did finally escape it when he was 17 and then went out and lived his life. He doesn't have any family and he didn't when he was alive. And he certainly doesn't now. And it took a lot of work. It took a lot of initial kind of startup capital for his landlords to get a show for him and to put him out there and to protect these artworks and to form an estate. There wasn't as an estate there. They saw something there. But then, yeah, legally, if people start to say, well, I have more knowledge, I have more value, so I'm going to come in and take this. That's a problem, too. And it just very much upsets me, too, that this kind of Chicago photography collector whose last name is Slattery reached out to them to do it. And they're all just saying it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. He used Air Search, which is a forensic genealogy research company. And they identified 50 descendants of his. And they are all named in the probate papers. And it just seems like to what end? Because Henry yeah. Darger's estate is worth a lot of money now. But it's also very important that it's taken care of, that it's housed are those, well. Are the landlords currently the only beneficiaries of that estate? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if they are the only beneficiaries where that money is. So this is all making me think of, um, I teach a book called How Would You Rule, which is just a bunch of weird legal cases. And um, one of them in there is, is titled Your Body, My Body. And it's about a man named John Moore who when he was 30 years old, he was dying and they went in and they found out that he had this horribly deadly, very rare form of blood cancer called hairy cell leukemia. And um, they did not expect him to live, but they took out his, so hairy cell leukemia killed 98% of the people that it afflicted. And they extracted his spleen that had grown to 22 pounds um, so he, the, they took out his spleen and he didn't die. And they were like, whoa, this is amazing. Why aren't you dying when 98% of the people die? And so they um, took his spleen for study because they were like, oh, well, this is obviously something interesting is going on here. And some of the cells that were taken from his spleen were cultivated by two doctors who figured out a way to produce proteins from them. And in 1981, they applied for a patent on the process of cultivating cells from that cell line. And they named, they gave the cell line the name Mo in honor of the guy whose body it came from, but he later sued because it was estimated that the, so um, let me find the exact quote here. Dr. Gold had licensed his patented process for cultivating the cell line, earning an initial license fee of hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And in the most optimistic projections, the university estimated that the cells could be worth as much as $3 billion. And so um, Moore sued them and said, I never gave you permission to take my cells. I want some of that money that came from my body. And they were like, mm, it's medical waste. Like we, you, you can't sue us for that. And so it went, it went to court over this argument of like whether Moore had a right to those cells or Moore had a right to some of the money from his cells. Um, ultimately, the court found that he did not because it was uh, was at the time of the extractions, Moore had no expectations that his cells would be returned to him. So basically that they hadn't violated any of the expectations. He had agreed to the surgery and they had done like they told him that, you know, they did not tell him and we'll hand you your spleen back. So it's not like they right, stole it. From right. Him, right. And he wouldn't. Right. And that's that's why I get frustrated with this in some ways. I don't want us to have a slippery slope where like we're stealing kidneys or we're running into outsider artists' homes and defrauding them. But at the same time, if his spleen had just been thrown in the trash, he would never want his spleen. It took right. experts, medical experts, a lot of work to make that into money, to make it viable. And along the way, it did a lot of good for humankind, like seeing Henry Darger seeing art it's not the same as curing cancer but um it hel- it benefits everyone it goes out to a larger thing and then this idea that then once it's out there large and it is making money which again pre-connection with the short stories that it doesn't get disseminated until there's money attached to it then people say no i do want it and that feels very much the opposite of what this person who tracked down the relative said about they just want what's right and it's not fair they cashed in on it well, I don't see why people who weren't alive when this man was alive can cash in on. But the this people artwork. who did the actual work of curating it and getting, yeah. like in this case, like your spleen didn't cure cancer on its own. Like it provided right. the cells, and then doctors did a lot of work to turn that into a cancer cure. And like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of money, but a lot of that money, it's not like the doctors were just pocketing $3 billion. Like a lot of it was going right. back into research and going back into facilities. And like, it's it's a more complicated calculation than that ultimately they they said it was like an analogy to abandoned property and in Mm -hmm. california you are not allowed to have your body parts they must be buried or incinerated or otherwise um disposed of according to like the medical disposal laws and so like he couldn't have taken his spleen even if he wanted to um so the the conclusion was that based on all of those considerations, one, the lack of an analogy to an established form of property, the California law prohibiting him from keeping his biological material, the rights conferred by the patent and the effects on scientific research, the court concluded that Moore did not own the cells and that Dr. Gold could not be liable for having to pay him. And so- Yeah, that one seems a lot more clear cut. And I think that's a great- one to bring in. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, because I would imagine that there is a law in Illinois about property in an apartment building and how long heirs have to try to claim it before it becomes the property of the owner of that space. So, right. Like, and I, the argument is it, it goes up February 23rd. And I think that's the crux of it, that they're saying this, it was our property. We rented it we can go in and take it right that argument that it there wasn't a will there's also some argument about he told them they could have it but there's no proof of that um versus what the relatives are saying 
is that there the chain of command in Illinois at least meant that it should have gone to the state before the landlords. Surprise, but then, everybody, this entire episode of Angreement is just an extended commercial to tell you to go get your estate planning done. <laughs> yes, we haven't we have our first sponsor brought to you by estateplanning.com. <laughs> go make a will, if you will. I couldn't well, come up with a good. But yeah, if you will. But of yeah. course, but like that's why I'm so interested in it with outsider art. These are people who oftentimes are outsiders, if we're going to use that term, for very real reasons, right? He was put in an asylum at the age of eight for the feeble minded youth. And then he had this religious fervor and was making these things. And he's not going to say, he's not going to say, oh, when I die, all my artwork is going to go to this blah, artwork blah, blah. that this I've is what I intentionally want. shown to no one. I mean, I guess right. there is also that element of it. Is it okay to show somebody something that the artist maybe didn't? I, but I mean, that's that's definitely not so much a legal question as it is sort of just an ethical one. And I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know how much my feelings about that, which I can't quite pin down alone, but I feel like they are also shading my response to the entire thing. I have big feelings about that. I've been on a Kafka kick again. I haven't looked at Kafka since high school. And now all of a sudden I'm feeling very, gee, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing about like, the world yeah. is Kafka-esque right now or anything. I just, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Most, a lot of what we know of Kafka's work, he didn't want anyone to ever see. Yeah. Yeah. And I would be like, I mean, I don't even keep that many like journals and writings and things because I, I, but like, I don't want anybody taking my journals and publishing them after like, am I like, do I need to write it into my estate planning that you've got to burn this, like burn this box. Don't open it. I (laughs) burn it. Yeah. I had that exact conversation with my, my spouse about he keeps a journal and I'm like, can I read your journal if you die? And he's like, no, no, you can't. And now I kind of wish I hadn't asked because if I hadn't asked, I could have, but now I can't and I won't, I won't, I'll be good. But so I looked, my research portion was that it made me really interested in what does happen to the estates of these outside. How do the outsider artists become known? Yeah. And then what happens with those estates? And so I looked up a few off the top of my head, the outsider artists who are off the top of my head. Um, I just researched. And so there's an artist named Morton Bartlett who made a lot of dolls that he never wanted anyone to see and photograph them. And he died in 1992 and a New York art and antique dealer named Marion Harris bought his whole estate. She just saw them and bought everything and now they're in, they're, they're all in museums now. And she has kept all the rights to the photography and is going to make money off of that. And her relatives, her descendants will for the rest of their lives. There's an artist named Bill Trailer, And he received his first public exhibition in 1940. He's actually really, really, really interesting because he was discovered while he was still alive, Bill Trailer. And he got his first exhibition in 1940, but really didn't become acclaimed. And again, what do we mean by acclaimed? It means his art is worth a lot of money in this case until like 30 years after his death. And in the late seventies, it started to get very collectible, worth a lot of money. Again, we're talking $800,000 up to a million dollars for artworks. And he was kind of a self-taught artist and he was discovered by 
Charles Shannon, who was also an artist. And what does that mean? Discovered too. And we're saying this, but he's credited with discovering Bill Trailer, and they met in Montgomery, Alabama, where Trailer lived. And he said, Hey, I like what you're doing. And then he bought art supplies for Trailer. They had this arrangement where I will buy all your material, but then I kind of get whatever you make. And that happens a lot too. There's another outsider artist named Adolf Wolfi, who was basically committed to an institution most of his life. And one of the doctors there was like, hey, you make good art, and then supplied him with art supplies. And then, oh, lo and behold, when he died, took everything and said, this is valuable. Um, And then one that's also really interesting or sad. I'm going to end on a sad one, which I don't want to do. But William Edmondson, who was born in 1874, worked his whole life and then said, oh, I had a calling from God. And again, there's a a lot of times there's religious fervor involved in outsider art, making art, that it's a call from God or they're doing it for spiritual reasons. But he was basically unknown. And then someone named Louise Dahl Wolf, who was a photographer in New York, saw his works when visiting friends in Nashville where he lived, took photos of them. She showed them to Alfred Barr, who was the director at the time of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And Barr was so impressed while Edmondson was still alive that he arranged for an exhibition of the artist the next year. So in 1937, William Edmondson became the first African-American artist to ever have a solo show at the MoMA, period. And they were this outsider artist. And yet he was buried in an unmarked grave with no money, even though, again, his stuff is worth a ton. He had a show at MoMA. And so I don't want to say, oh, whoever makes the art famous should get the money because there are examples of so much exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, where the first African-American to have a show at the MoMA died penniless and saw no money from that show. That's not okay either. But I also don't think it's okay that you, so much of this, well, here's another pre-connection with the short stories. So much infrastructure had to be put into play for that to come about. But this wouldn't come about if we didn't have 23andMe and these genetic databases now. Because we'd never know who has. You would never know that they existed you don't just type it in. So I don't, I think much like you, I don't really know what to say about this other than. Isn't this a thing? It's a thing. It's something that's really tickling my brain. It's a big moral quandary. And I don't want to take the side of like people who say, oh, we shouldn't repatriate artwork. No. Because it's more protected in Europe. I hate that argument, but I, no. It also doesn't feel right to go like this one just doesn't, it doesn't feel right either way. Honestly, like it feels we like, also, yeah, we shouldn't throw your spleen in the trash. Yeah. I don't think that works with the metaphor, but your case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have like Henrietta Lacks, right? That, that cell line, which was exploitative too. And it's not always exploitative. I don't think the spleen was, but all right, that's it. We're going to connect them. We're going to, we're going to do it.
Okay, you went first. So my weird thing was the upheaval of all of our known human history with the discovery of a tooth. I just kind of feel like that should be on the fortune cookie. That should be it. We can stop there. Sorry. Um, um, yeah, people I, of all human history done because <laughs> of a tooth. So my weird thing was why the beach boys smile went unreleased for so long. My pop culture thing was some amorphous. Why do I keep watching shows that make me cry and laugh? I no, I, I guess, I guess my pop culture thing is just the, um, the surprising quality of shows with a stark contrast in emotional tone. And just let's reflect on that. Yeah. Let's just, let's just hold that in our mind. My pop culture, my banger, my record setting pop culture, um, was the discovery of Chuck Tingle and his, um, novelty erotica, including the manifestation, the human manifestation of Wordle who pounds someone's butt. My research thing was that the short story isn't as old as you would think it is. And then my research thing was, what do we do with the legacy of outsider artists and their estates and their artwork once people have put in the work to make it worth a lot, but who who gets the rights to it? That was long-winded, but yeah. All right. Well, there's clearly a thing about audience and framing something after the fact, I think, for everything except maybe my pop culture. So let's set that one aside for a second. But so in my weird thing, the tooth, the Neanderthal, we have this very established theory of how Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interacted. And then this tooth upends it and shows that maybe we didn't know as much as we thought we did. And also maybe we shouldn't have been stating it quite so confidently to begin with, right? Like maybe we should never have framed it as so neat of a story to start with, right? Exactly. Um, And then the Beach Boys smile, he had a story in his head about that for so long until eventually through his own mental health treatment and just the impacts of time, that story changed, right? Um, Chuck Tingle is clearly choosing things that are of a very specific moment in time and reframing them for comedic effect, right? Right, yeah. And then the short story, like, it was literally framed by like the margins of a magazine in order to turn it into the short story. But those were obviously stories that authors had inside of them. That Always we as existed. Human beings, yeah. That format was there, but then, and then um, the Henry Darger legal case is clearly about, I mean, one man's trash is another man's treasure. That's how I'll sum it up. That doesn't work as a fortune cookie, but yeah, about who, who is who sees that it is a value and puts in kind of the the labor to extract value from it? That's why this bothers me. 
because that's what I'm saying. I'm actually making an argument for like the fucking Jeff Bezos of the world and basically mining the earth, right? Who gets, who can extract value from it? Well, they should be the winners. That's why it bothers me. And I can't quite say, let everyone have the money who discovered the art because I don't like that concept. Because then that, that incentivizes doing terrible things Yes, to like, we're not good enough as a people to, to, for that to be the rule because we would do exactly things. Good things have come from it, but, but more often bad. Yeah. More often bad. That's why. I, yeah. I think I can make my pop culture thing fit too, because okay. I think that if you just listen to like the plot of Shit's Creek or Ted Lasso or Atlanta, it sounds funny and light, but then when you look back on it after having actually experienced it and actually pulling out the meaning from it, it's a different story. Like it's a different impact. Yeah. And so, so I think the theme here is changing the story after the like there's a there's a theme about framing the story from a historical perspective right like can can the fortune cookie and the message be what we started the podcast with with what you taught to your homeschool students what was it that you said about um the stories we tell are all constructed oh the um the inter intersubjectivity, right? The like, yeah, like <laughs> reality is only what we agree to. <laughs> like, is that I it? mean, that's that's it. That's it. That's the fortune cookie. Reality is only what we agree to. Yeah, maybe it doesn't fit as neatly, but like that's something I need. I need that message right now. Yeah, reality is only something you agree to. But no, it has to be the we. We, we, yes. You can't do it on your own. And that's the hard part of it. Because if I could just yep. do it on my own, that would feel empowering. Do but you see how I changed it for what I wanted it to be? And that isn't it. And I it. said, no, not it. I don't agree it to doesn't that. Work. So, yeah. So we're not in this. Yeah, yeah. So reality, okay. Reality is only, is only what, what we agree to. Agree to. I think we did it. That was fast. Okay. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, man. I think. Take it and run. Yep. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. We're going. We're running up. <laughs>